If we haven't met, uh, my name is Nate, and I am the senior minister here at Hillcrest Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us, whether it's your first time or maybe it's been a while since you've been here. I'm glad that you're here today to worship. And if you haven't been here in a while, or if you haven't been keeping up with what we're doing, uh, as a church, as Glenn just said, uh, thank you for reading that, Glenn. We are studying together Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. It's a book in the Bible called Philippians. And our focus for a couple of months is building community. And we have learned, we see how Paul shows us what a community looks like. In this letter, Paul, he drives the church in Philippi, but very much for us today, to unity. He, he, he tells us that we should strive together in one mind for the faith of the gospel. And in week one, we saw that Paul shows us that every single one of us, we're all partners together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we should love one another with the affection of Jesus Christ. And that we should pray for one another. And as Jay said, pray for the person sitting next to you. And then in week two, uh, Chris showed us different elements of what a community looks like as the church of Jesus Christ. And if you weren't here on week two, you can go and watch that. I want to encourage you to watch that. It was a great message. Um, that Chris preached. And then last week, Paul shows us the key component of what it means to be a unified church. And a strong church that has a lot of unity comes from humility. And Jesus was our example last week of humility. And so today we're going to continue in what Paul's talking about in chapter 2. Uh, but before we do that, I want to I share with you something personal about me that you may not know. I'm really out of shape. I am, when I walk up these stairs in our church, I'm just going to be honest with you. I get tired. I'm out of breath. That's how out of shape I am. Now, I may look like I'm in shape because I'm somewhat skinny, but I'm not because if I were to take my shirt off right now, just so you know, I would not look like that. Okay? <laughs> that is a man that's in shape. Now, I will say, this guy was paid millions of dollars to look like that for a movie. You know, nobody's offered to pay me any money to work out yet. I'm still not there in my life or career as a minister of the gospel, but I'm not in shape, okay? And it's funny because when I was, it's, honestly, it's embarrassing how I get tired of walking up our steps in the church. When I was in high school, when I was a senior in high school, I was in the best shape of my life. And I remember I was in a, uh, I played basketball. We were always running and working out, and, and if you wanted to play, you had to work out and you had to run a lot. And I never played. I rode the bench, but I wanted to play, so I worked out and I ran a lot. So on a side note, I shot 100% from the free throw line as a senior in high school, which I still believe is a, is a record today in the state of Texas. 100%. Yeah, I was two for two. <laughs> so it's interesting because in my nutrition class, me and some friends were in a class together our entire senior year in nutrition, and the nutrition teacher would always tell us, you know, just wait until you, you graduate high school. Wait about six months. And you're not going to be forced to work out again. Your metabolism is going to slow down. You're going to gain weight. It's called the freshman 15. When you go into college, you gain you know, weight. And, and we were like, no, it's not going to happen to us. Because you know, when you're 18, you're invincible. And so we said, you know, it's not going to happen. It may happen to other people. It's never going to happen to us. We're always going to work out. We're always going to exercise. Lo and behold, six months later, I hadn't hardly exercised at all. I wasn't being forced to work out anymore. I wasn't being forced to run. Suicides on the basketball court. And so, as the nutrition teacher said... I did, in fact, gain weight. In fact, there was a barbecue place not far from my house called Rusty's. Now, Rusty's was a little mom-and-pop shop. It's since been closed. But Rusty's, you could go get a chopped beef sandwich, and I don't even know that it was real beef, 
but you can get a chopped beef sandwich. You can get two chopped beef sandwiches, a whole plate of fries, two pickle spears, and a large sweet tea, all for $4. And so uh, that's unheard of today. And I ate there three, four times a week. If I wasn't at Rusty's, I was at Chipotle. And all the while, I wasn't exercising. So the weight came on. The nutrition teacher was right. When I started to get back into it, it was really hard. You could feel uh, the side effects of what it's like to not work out for a long time, to not eat a, a healthy diet, for metabolism to slow down. It's, it's really difficult getting back into it. It's almost you feel like you have to just force yourself to go. It almost becomes like a chore. Like you really have to work. It's a chore. Just like you have to go to work to make an income, you have to go to the gym to be, in, uh, to be healthy and, and you know, to be physically fit. And I want to tell you, much is the same with the Christian life. Much is the same of the Christian life. In fact, when Paul writes a letter to one of his mentors, Timothy, he says this. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, he says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So Paul says, look, physical training, it's important. It has its value. It has its place. But godliness has value for all things. And so I'm going to transition from working out, like working out in the gym, like being physically fit and dieting and exercising and all those things, to spiritually working out, spiritually exercising, because the concept is very much the same when it comes to the Christian life. The Christian life takes work. The Christian life, it takes discipline. I don't know if you knew that or not. That's why one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-discipline. The Christian life takes discipline. It doesn't come easy. It requires effort to live the Christian life. Maybe... Someone in this room's never even heard that before, but it takes effort to live your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, the God of the universe. It does not come easy. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Paul finishes saying, when he's talking about the humility of Jesus, he finishes by saying these words, Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul says there will be a point that every knee in the entire world entire world, every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow to King Jesus, the Lord of the universe. That's what Paul finishes from last week. And so we're going to pick up in Philippians 2, verse 12. The Bible says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. My first point, I have three points this morning to help uh, us unpack this text. My first point is salvation is only the beginning of a life committed to Jesus. My first point is salvation is, is only the beginning of a life committed to Jesus. So Paul says continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what does Paul mean? Well, well first we want to start at what is, what is salvation? Now many of you are like, well, I know what salvation is. And, and that may be, and to put it plainly, salvation is the saving work of God through Christ on the cross. It's being delivered of being held accountable by God for your sin. You're being delivered of that. You're being saved from being held accountable because of your sin. That's the good news of the Bible. It's that God has saved us through Christ and His finished work on the cross. Remember last week, the blood that He shed on His cross. That was Jesus' cross. It was always His cross. It wasn't the cross. It wasn't the Roman cross. It was always His cross. It was always His Father's will. It was always Jesus' destiny to carry that cross, to die on that cross, to shed His blood on His cross. That was the will of the Father for Jesus. 
And if you remember Matthew 1 last December in your Bible reading plan, I think it was on day two. I don't pay attention too much. But it was on day two this year. Matthew 1, it says, talking about why Jesus came, to save his people from their sins. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. He came to save his people from their sins. That's what his name means, to save. See, at one point in, in all of our lives, one point, at one point in every single person's life, in this room right now, myself included, we, we stood condemned before a holy God because of our sin. That's not something people like to hear a lot. But the truth is, God is perfectly holy, and you and I are not. And so because of that, we stood condemned before a holy God because of our sin. My wife and I were watching Law and Order Special Victims uh, Unit this last week. Anybody watch that show? Sometimes. I'm, I'm, am I the only one in this room that watches that show? It's been on for 22 years. Um, <laughs> but my wife has always watched that show. She's seen every episode. Well, she introduced me to that show last year. So I started walking, watching it. It's a great show. And there was a guy who stood on trial in this last episode for a crime that he most definitely committed. In fact, it was a lot of crimes that he had done in the past that had been catching up to him. He was a judge who was running for Congress or Senate or something, a higher office. And they found out that he had committed a lot of things. In the, and I won't go into details, it doesn't matter, but he had committed a lot of things, and they were looking to find evidence. And they were finding people that he committed all of these crimes against that they would sit on the stand and testify what he did. The only problem was people were scared to testify against him because he could ruin their careers. Long story short, they find the evidence. They condemn him for uh, the crimes that he committed. And the only problem is sometimes prosecutors and defense attorneys, they work out a deal, right? And they had worked out a deal for this guy because he was very high up as a judge and and so he wasn't going to serve his full punishment. In fact, he was only going to get a year, an ankle bracelet in his house. My wife and I are watching and it's like, man, this guy deserves the worst punishment. He needs to go to prison for the rest of his life. That's what we're thinking. And he gets off with that. And then the judge, because the judge can counter on anything that they decide, the judge is like, that's not good enough for me. You're going to go to jail for what you did because you deserve to go to jail. And me and my wife jump up off the couch. We're celebrating, clapping. This guy's going to prison for what he did because he deserved it. And I'm not even kidding you, in that moment, the Lord was showing me something about myself. I was no different than that man who deserved to go to prison. See, there was a time in my life and in your life when you deserved eternal wrath. There was a time in everybody's life in this room when we deserved eternal damnation. When we deserved to spend eternity separated from God. Every single one of us deserved that. And it really put me in my place. It was a moment, it happened so fast, but the Lord showed me as I was celebrating for that man, that was me. And that was you. Last week we learned that through Jesus' thank God for His Son and the humility that He showed on that cross. That Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we learned that it was His cross. It was always His cross. It was always His Father's will to die on that cross. And that blood, His blood that was shed on His cross became our salvation. And by the way, salvation, it is a gift. It was a gift that came with a cost. God the Father gave up His one and only beloved Son to die on that cross for the salvation of all who would believe. No longer standing condemned before a holy God, but delivered, saved. Salvation has come in your life when you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. His finished work on the cross. You know that you're a sinner standing condemned before a holy God and it takes God and only God alone to save you from that position.
And then you're baptized with Jesus, identifying with his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And by the grace of God, you are forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. You've heard that before. Yesterday's sin, today's sin, tomorrow's sin, forgiven. And then filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God. Not a single thing that you could have done to earn that. It was a gift, the Bible tells us. Forgiven of all sin. However, there's a problem in the church today. Maybe you'll agree, maybe you won't, and that's okay. You don't have to agree with everything I say. But many Christians believe that they take their salvation as an invitation to live how they choose to live and live how they want to live. I'm saved, and, and I was baptized, and even when I was a kid, and so I'm just going to live my life how I want to live. And, and the problem with that is we start to play a comparison game. My sin's not as great as their sin, and so I'm actually doing okay when you compare uh, my life to theirs. You know, I actually, I come to church, and, I, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm involved in a life group, and they're not even, they're hardly coming to church, and you know, they're, they're not in a life group, and so I'm doing more than they are. And so, my sin, yeah, I realize I have sin, and, and you know, I, it's fine, I'm saved. I believed in Jesus, I was baptized, and so, you know, there are people who are doing worse things. They call themselves Christians. That's a dangerous place to live. It is a dangerous place to live, to say, I'm saved, and so it really doesn't matter how I live my life. I'm doing better than most. I go to church. I'm a part of a life group, so it doesn't really matter. Well, the problem is you don't compare yourself to this person sitting next to you. You don't compare yourself to anybody else in the world. Do you know the state of your existence before God reached down into the depths of your soul and saved you? Do you know who who you were, where you were, the state of your existence and mine? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead, Paul says. That's who you and I were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. I actually preached this text here, I think, before. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. And this is bad news now. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the earth. That is Satan, by the way. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. We all once lived there. And the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and so listen to this. The bad news just keeps getting worse. We were all, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of the world. You see, this world has fallen. This world is broken. It's just how it is. And it always will be until Jesus returns and makes a new heaven and a new earth. This world has fallen. This world is broken. And it's corrupted because of sin. Paul says when we enter into this world, it's our nature. We have a sin nature. And we're, we're no different than anybody else By nature, we're children of wrath, the Bible says, like the rest of the world. That's who you and I were before Jesus stepped in. We were objects of God's wrath. And I know that is bad news. But then Paul comes back with what I think are the two best words you'll find in all of Scripture. And again, you can disagree with me. There's a lot of good things said in the Bible. But but Paul says, but God being rich in mercy. You were an object of God's wrath, following the course of this world, dead in your sins and trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy, and He is rich in mercy. And Somebody might need mercy this morning. You might need to receive the mercy of God this morning, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love. It could have said love, but it says great love. There is no greater love than one who lays down his life for his friends. You know that text. Jesus says that. I didn't quote it perfectly. But the great love of God with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, in our sins, in our transgressions against God. 
Paul saying, even when we were dead against God in our sin, because of His great mercy, He made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul says, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Paul's not saying in Philippians, work for your salvation. You can't work for your salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Paul's not saying work for your salvation. We can't, we can't do that. He says it's by grace. It's by God's grace you have been saved. And Paul is so emphatic on that that he mentions it again. He goes on, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Again, he's being emphatic. It's, you couldn't have done anything yourself to earn the salvation. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, Paul says. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift from God, not a result of works. You can't work. You could serve as much as you can serve more than any person who's ever served throughout all of history. It won't be enough to earn salvation. Paul says it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is only the beginning of a life committed to Jesus. God has works for you that He has already prepared for you. You just need to walk in them. You just need to walk in them. So Paul says, continue to work out your salvation, fear and trembling. Now, I'm just going to tell you that fear and trembling, this is a controversial verse right here. There's a lot of debate about what this actually means. And I'm going to give you two different meanings that I think it, it could still mean both of them. But I'm honestly not quite sure after doing much study of this what Paul is actually trying to say. And I'm going to show you what I think he's saying. And you can go home because you have a Bible and a million resources available to you. And you can search and test this yourself. But Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Many believe that, by the way, this is not being terrified of God. If you're terrified of God, then and you've got a wrong way of thinking about God. You don't be terrified about God. God is our refuge. He's our safe place. He's our comforter. And many other things. So, this could simply mean being in awe of God. Having reverence for God. I think that's just already the case. God has saved you. He has saved you from eternal damnation. Wouldn't that cause you to be in awe of God? You didn't deserve it. You literally did not deserve it. Nobody did. Not myself or anybody else. And all of history deserved God's grace and salvation. But it was a gift. And then He saved you from being eternally separated from Him. That would cause you, it should cause all of us to be in awe of God and have reverence because He's a holy God. But He's also a good and gracious and loving God. And we've seen that already. And so Paul, I think if you surrender your life to Jesus, knowing that He saved you from eternal damnation, that's going to cause you to be in awe of God. You're going to have reverence for Him. But what's going to do is it should cause you to surrender your life to the Master that is Jesus. Jesus has kept me from eternal damnation. That would cause us to follow Him with all of our lives. Surrender our entire lives. Treat Him as Lord. Treat Him as Master. His Word. Not our choice. Not how we choose His Word. Obedient to His Word. Another meaning can be fear and trembling. In the Greek, that's... And I don't... If I pronounce this wrong, don't worry about that. But in the Greek, it's phobias 
and tromos. Phobias, is where we get the word in English for, for phobia, you know, phobia, and trembling, tromos, trauma. So Paul could be saying, uh, continue to work out your salvation with phobia and trauma. Now you have to understand, at this time when Paul's writing this letter, the emperor of Rome was Nero. Nero was a bad man. Nero hated Christians. It can be one thing to be passive towards Christians as a ruler and dictator. Maybe not letting Christians plant churches, but Nero hated Christians. He burned them alive for amusement. He threw Christians, people like you and me, into an arena and had them devoured by lions and killed by gladiators for amusement, for sport. He would light Christians' dead bodies on fire and use it as a path as his soldiers marched on. Nero was a bad man, which would cause these Christians to have fear. And if you're hearing stories of how Christians like them in Philippi are being killed for their faith in Jesus, it might cause you to have a little bit of trauma, especially if you've witnessed it yourself. There was a lot of fear that they had. They were under heavy persecution. They didn't get to do what we're doing like this. But Paul is saying, I know you're scared. I know Nero has brought fear in your life. Stay in the fight. Keep moving forward. Exercise your salvation and let it grow in the midst of persecution. You can test what that means yourself. Paul goes on in verse 13. He says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Let me read that again. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. So I want to show a video real quick. This is uh, Vonda Hamilton. So if you remember in our Bible reading plan, which we talk about every week, there's a memory verse for each month. And as the year goes on, the, the verses kind of stack. So this month there's only one verse. Next month there's two verses. The month after that it might be two or three. I can't remember if I was gracious to you or not. But it starts getting to where it's more verses. Because God's Word tells us to hide His Word in our hearts. To meditate on it day and night. And the way for us to do that is to memorize God's Word. It's, it's biblical to do that. And so this week is Acts 1 verse 8. You just saw it from Vonda. Annabeth and Jay Reed are also going to recite this month's memory verse. Amen. Can we give them a hand? I'm going to awkwardly call some people in the middle of this next week and ask you to do the same. So be ready for that phone call. This is good. This is good to memorize God's Word. And we need to be encouraged to do it. Hey, call somebody in this church this week. Text them. Email them. Hey, what are you doing with your memory verse? Can we practice on the phone together? We want to hide God's Word in our hearts. Jesus says right there, Acts 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The power of God living in us, the power of Almighty God indwells you. Do you even realize what that means? God on high has given you power. It's incredible. If you've believed in the name of Jesus Christ, and you've been baptized, identifying with His life, death, and resurrection, you have received power from Almighty God. And He's forgiven you of all sin yesterday, today, and forever. You're a child of God, a son and a daughter of the Lord of the universe. That's who you are. And Jesus says you have power. And I want to tell you, don't disqualify yourself if you're sitting in this room because of your current circumstances. Don't disqualify yourself because of maybe where you were brought up. Maybe you weren't brought up in money. Maybe you were brought up with a lot of hardship. 
Maybe you were abused as a child or beaten or verbally abused. Maybe you had a rough childhood. Don't disqualify yourself because of your past. Don't disqualify yourself because of maybe you don't make enough money or, or as much money as the person sitting next to you. You don't disqualify yourself because of those things. As if any of those things influence your walk with God. They don't. In our Bible reading this past week, in Acts chapter 10, so if you're reading in the Bible reading, you saw this. I want to read a few verses and then you'll see part of it on the screen. Peter has a vision. A blanket comes over him and it says, kill and eat. God was showing Peter it's probably a bacon sandwich. I think it was a bacon sandwich. Jews didn't eat pork, and so Peter had fallen short so many times. Jesus said, you're going to die, deny me three times, and Peter's like, no, I'm not going to deny you, and Peter denied him three times. And then Peter, felt, he fell short all the time. That's why we love Peter, because we can identify with Peter. And so Peter gets this vision, and Peter's like, I'm not doing nothing. I'm not killing him. I'm not eating. No. Because he's not falling for that one, right? But then there's a knock at the door, because at the very same time, a vision was given to Cornelius. Cornelius was a sergeant, a Roman leader in the Italian regiment, in my Bible it says, which I think is pretty cool. And Cornelius gets a vision. Now it says Cornelius, who was a Roman general or a Roman leader, but he was a God-fearing man, which means he believed in the Jewish God. And he gets a vision the very same time Peter gets a vision. So Cornelius sends people to Peter. And this is where we'll pick up. In Acts 10, verse 27, it says, Talking with them, Peter gets there to Cornelius. And he says, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. Jews were very, very careful with abiding in their traditions and in their laws. And so Peter says, you know it's against the law for me to even be here. And he goes on, but God, there's but God again, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Then Peter says, may I ask why you have sent for me? And Peter goes on, where it says, then Peter began to speak. Cornelius says, I had a vision. The vision told me to send people to come get you. And so just tell us about the things of God. And so Peter does that. And then he says, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Who needs to hear that today? I now realize that how true it is that God on high does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation. Nation is underlined. Why? Because it's not America, Canada, or Mexico, it's not nations, it's ethnos, it's people groups. It's every tribe, tongue, nation on the planet, every people group. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every tribe, tongue, and nation who fear Him and do what is right. It has nothing to do with where you were brought up. It has nothing to do with how much money you have in your bank account. It has nothing to do with the hardships that you're facing or have faced in your life. God does not look at you and see your past. He looks at you and he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on his cross and shed his blood for, for your salvation. When God looks at you, he sees his son. He sees you as a son and a daughter. Your past, your current circumstances, they do not matter because God does not show favoritism. And I believe that somebody in this room needed to hear that today. Maybe somebody came in here this morning and maybe you haven't been here in a while and you feel bad about that. Or you haven't gotten involved in a life group and you feel don't feel bad about that. Feel bad if I call you in the middle of the week and ask you about not being in the life group. Then feel bad. That was a joke, of course. The point is, don't feel bad. God has you right where you are supposed to be. Right now. You've come here. I don't care how long it's been since you haven't been in this building or any church building. You're here right now. And God on high is speaking to you in His Word saying, I love you. I love you. And I don't show favoritism. 
I don't love the person who's coming here every week and I don't love the person who's hosting a life group any more than you. doesn't show favoritism. Don't beat yourself down. And don't read the Bible, by the way. We encourage the Bible reading plan. I still am on my first point and I'm almost out of time. Don't read the Bible reading plan just because you're supposed to as a Christian. Read the Bible reading plan because God is there. This is the revelation of God. And when you read this, Every day of the week, you are meeting with the living God. And His Word is alive and active, and it's speaking to you and to me today. My mentor came to the church this past week, first time. Um, I used to clean his pool back in 2011 and 2014, before I was a Christian. He gave me a Bible, and it was a King James Version of the Bible, and I couldn't understand it at the time. I still don't know why he gave me that. I would have much preferred an NLT or NIV, but that's okay. But in it, this is what matters. In it, he said, read five to ten minutes a day for life-changing direction. Read five to ten minutes a day for life-changing direction. I'll never forget that note he wrote in that Bible. It would be another three years until I would come to saving faith in Jesus and start reading my Bible. But he was praying for me all the time. And God's Word, I am proof, and many of you are proof, reading just a little bit of this Bible every day will change your life. It will transform your life if you just give five to ten minutes a day and stay with that. So Paul says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. You want to know the purposes of God for your life? You want to know God's will for your life? You will find it in the Bible. It's not a mystery. God's plan and, and will for your life is not a mystery. You don't have to go ask somebody, what, I don't know God's plan for my life. You'll find it in the Word. So read God's Word. Paul goes on. He says in verse 14, Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe. Your Bible may say something different. You shine like stars in the sky as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. My second point is working out to finish strong. Working out to finish strong. Now, I would consider this to be a safe place. I know many of you pretty well. and Because it's a safe place, and although I'll be brief, we all spend time complaining, don't we? We all spend time arguing, especially in a recent political season that we've all experienced. Or in a pandemic. There's, there's been just a list, a long list of things to complain about. We've all been complaining, we've all been arguing. There's always something when it comes to politics to complain and to argue about. And I don't know that you would disagree with me. You can complain about something great. Uh, who the president is. Or you can complain about something small. Maybe you're waiting in line at the DMV and you've been waiting for three hours because we know how that is and someone cuts in front of you, you're just going to skip the complaining and arguing. You're going to go straight to, it's time to fight that person. Because that's how the DMV is. We complain and we argue about things that are small. We complain and argue about things that are big. Nonetheless, Paul says, do everything without complaining and arguing. Do everything. In fact, you might remember similar language. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. So what do we know about Paul in Philippians 2? What is he saying? He's saying that complaining and arguing does not glorify God. It doesn't. Complaining and arguing does not bring glory to God. So Paul says, do everything for God's glory. Complaining and arguing is not glorifying God. And you know what separates every single person in this room from the world? It's not a trick question. Jesus. Jesus separates us from the rest of the world in His finished work on the cross. 
And so Paul, why do I say that? Paul goes on to say that we live in a crooked and depraved generation. A wicked generation. Your Bible may say something different, but it's perversion. It's wickedness. That's the world that we live in. It's a fallen world filled with sin. And Paul says, we live there. But Paul also says that you are to shine like stars in the universe. Despite the fact that you're in a wicked and depraved generation, Paul says, shine like stars in the universe. And how do we do that? Especially when we're all focused on what's happening in the now. How do we do that? How do we shine like stars in the universe? Paul tells us, as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. How do we shine like stars in the universe? We hold out the word of life. What is the word of life? Does anybody know what the word of life is? Jesus. One more guess. Word of life. The Bible. It's the gospel. It's the very words of Jesus. It's the Word of God. It's the Gospel. That's the Word of life. And another way you could translate this, if you were to look at it in the Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but he says, hold fast to the Word of life. It's the Gospel. It's Jesus. But it could be like this, holding forth the Word of life. Holding forth. Imagine you're at a wedding and someone's serving you wine. And so they, hit, they see your, your glass is empty, and so they're going to hand out a, bottle, a glass of wine for you. They're going to they're hand it out. They're going to hold it out for you. Come get it. Paul's saying, as you hold forth, as you serve the gospel with your life. You want to shine like stars in the universe? Serve the gospel with your whole life. That's how you'll shine like stars in the universe. There's this picture of uh, Bernie Sanders from the inauguration. I don't know if you've seen that picture. This picture has gone viral. They're using it as a meme. And it's pretty hilarious. I've partook in it. And you can go to the next one. And So it's kind of like, that's what it looks like. This has gone viral. This is a big deal all over the world. Can you imagine if we served up the Gospel like we're sharing this meme all over? Can you imagine if the Gospel went viral like Bernie Sanders has gone viral? It needs to. Amen. Many of us find reasons to complain about anything. We complain about the carpet, complain about the chairs, complain about the walls, complain about this and that. We will be a complaining church or a proclaiming church. You have to decide where you stand. We will be a complaining church or we will be a proclaiming church. Just share the gospel. You want to shine like stars in a wicked generation? Just share the gospel. Make much of Jesus so that when you look back at the end of your life, you know that you didn't run or labor for nothing. You don't want to look back at the end of your life and, and see that you complained all the time. You want to look back at the end of your life and say, man, I made much of Jesus and I served up the gospel. He goes on, Paul goes on, he says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. My third and final point, I'm going to wrap up here. This gospel is worthy of pouring out your life or it isn't. This gospel is worthy of pouring out your life or it's not. Last week, we saw Jesus pour out His life on that cross. His cross. Jesus, the Son of the living God, poured out His life, shed His blood on His cross. Paul says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering. You see how Paul's in jail right now? He's suffering, yet he's not making it about himself. He's, all of the focus and the attention is on the Philippians. Paul's not making it about himself. He's making it about them. And he's making it about Jesus. And you see, all throughout this letter, there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of rejoicing in the midst of Paul who writes a letter in jail. Knowing that he's going to die soon, he's full of joy. And his own suffering was secondary. 
And so Paul says, my life is being poured out like a drink offering, a sacrifice and serving. You could translate that sacrificial serving. It's a sacrifice to share the gospel in some places. It's an actual sacrifice to do that. Because you could end up like Paul in jail. But Paul says, but I rejoice. But I rejoice. If you remember in week two, Chris preached, he preached, uh, Paul was in jail. You remember that, right? You see, the thing about Paul is Paul is like this cup. He, he never had a lid on his life. You know, so, for example, when Paul went to jail, he didn't just stop sharing the gospel. I guess I should just wait until I get out of jail, and then I'll make much of Jesus. No, Paul kept sharing the gospel. He kept serving up the gospel. You ever been around someone, and uh, they just won't stop talking about Jesus? Everywhere they go, it's Jesus. Jesus, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm too blessed to be stressed. You know, Jesus, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. You know, I'm too blessed to be stressed. I was just reading in my Bible reading plan this morning. You know what the Bible said about Jesus? Jesus, Jesus. They won't just won't stop talking about Jesus, this, Jesus, that. When Paul was in jail, he says, I'm either, whether I'm defending or confirming the gospel, people are getting saved. When Paul went to Athens, he preached the gospel. They rejected him. You know what Paul said? Your blood's on your own hands. I'm still going to preach Jesus. He didn't get discouraged. He kept preaching Jesus. When Paul went to Philippi, they put him in the, the deep, dark dungeon because of he was preaching the gospel. And what was Paul doing? Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. Preaching Jesus. Just preaching Jesus. That was Paul's life. And Paul's saying, I have poured out my life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which of us can say the same? Which of us can say that, that I have poured out my life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you want to get to the end of your life and look back and say, I complained. I could see Jesus. Thank you for showing my life. I complained all the time. I argued all the time, didn't I? Or would you rather look back on your life and see, I know that I did not run labor for nothing. I poured out my life for the gospel of of Jesus Christ. That's a decision that you have to make for yourself. We'll be a church that complains or we'll be a church that proclaims. But when I'm talking to you as an individual, make a decision for yourself. Do you want to pour out your life for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I cannot make that decision for you. I can't. I'm going to pray. Let's stand and worship. Then I'll close this in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, that it's alive, that it's active, that it's speaking to us today. Lord, although it was long, Father, I pray that you would use it for your glory and use it to shake our faith to help us to go out into tomorrow making much of Jesus, pouring out our lives for the sake of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.